Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to another edition of SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, alongside John Adams. And John, big news, big, big news. Did you see where former Florida football coach Dan Mullen is is back in the business? No. Well, I've got news for you then. Dan Mullen will be serving not as a coach, not not as a head coach, not as an assistant coach, not as an AD, but as a contributing resource to a high school football team down in the state of Georgia. So how the mighty have fallen? Couldn't could Dan Mullen not get a get an assistant job on that staff? Or have have we fallen all the way from coaching the Florida Gators to being a contributing resource to a high school team in in Georgia? I mean, we are we have egg all over our face. We've dedicated some time on this podcast in the past to discuss the offensive genius of Dan Mullen. That offensive genius is now contributing to a high school staff in the state of Georgia. He disappeared after leaving Florida. And honestly, when you started, I really thought you were going to say he was last seen running through the woods with Bigfoot. I believe he actually spent most of his time on the beach or the golf course. He was tweeting some photos uh, with his toes in the sand there for a while. Well, good for him. Maybe he's just going. Maybe he's just going to kick back and buy lots of tennis shoes and uh, have a good time. I still think he's a great offensive coach. I'm, I'm standing by that. And and as we both know, we never hesitate to jump off bandwagons. I've injured my knee doing that abruptly. So that's that's not in keeping with my history, but yeah, but I still believe he's a really good coach. It could help any team offensively. He'll probably help that high school team down in Georgia. You know, back when the NIL stuff all came out, you heard some some experts and what have you giving advice to these college athletes of like don't don't agree to a deal just to agree to a deal. Don't don't lower your worth by taking the first hundred dollars that someone throws at you. I mean, isn't Dan Mullen kind of lowering his worth? Maybe he just wants to give back to the community. Maybe I'm being too cynical here. And and Dan Mullen says, you know what would be really good? Not to be a head coach or an assistant coach, but to give back just as a contributing resource to, to a local high school. That's probably what it is. I think he could have gotten a coaching job at, at a higher level. I just think he wants to chill out. And I think he's one of those guys that really loves the strategizing in a game, that's probably what motivates him the most. And he can do that anywhere. Perhaps somewhere down the line, his team will meet up with the Jeremy Pruitt team. And he can match wits with the former Tennessee football coach. I believe we know how that would turn out. We've seen it happen. That's a perfect segue into our, our main topic today, John. We're going to be discussing a handful of former 
SEC head coaches who we really miss seeing on the sideline and we'd like to see back. Of course, we discussed Dan Mullen off the bat here. We'll see if he makes one of our lists, but there's there's several strong contenders. Now, these just have to be people who coached in the SEC, not necessarily uh, fired, but they're former SEC coaches, no longer on the college sidelines, and we really, really want to see them back at an SEC school near you sometime soon. John, you want to bat lead off here? Who's your first former SEC coach whom you'd really like to see back on the sideline? Well, as we know, I can go deeply back in time, having been doing this for about 150 years. So I'll probably go back with to Bear Bryant. And I'm not saying that just because Bear Bryant was a great coach. But in Bear's final final years, even though he was winning spectacularly, I can still remember this view of him leaning against a goalpost. And I don't mean this disrespectful, Lee. He just looked almost like someone had propped a cardboard cutout of Bear Bryant and put it against the goalpost. But I think that would have been all it took for him to outcoach or for Alabama, his Alabama teams, to beat an opposing SEC team. He was such a great coach. Just the mere fact he was in the stadium, or you thought he was in the stadium, you would be you would be beaten already. But he wasn't animated at all on the sidelines. I was just fascinated by him. He I didn't think he aged particularly well, but he was such a great coach. And I think he just outsmarted the other guys time and time again. That would be the first guy that I would like to see back on the sideline, in part because he was a great coach, I guess. What's so interesting to me about him John, just, you know, as a, as a younger guy who kind of looks back on the, on the history of his career and, and didn't, uh, didn't cover him firsthand like you did. I think it's, it's amazing that, you know, before Alabama, he'd already had a successful coaching career. I mean, when you think Bear Bryant, you think Alabama, right? But you, you know, you look back at at what he did and, um, in his, his tenures at, at Texas A&M and, and at Kentucky, I mean, Kentucky's last sugar bowl bid you have to go all the way back to when Bear Bryant was coaching there. Went to, went to the Sugar Bowl in 1951, the 1950 season, won 11 games that year. Uh, and of course, you know, as we talked on on this podcast throughout last season, Kentucky was in contention for the Sugar Bowl throughout last year, but but didn't make it there. So I think that's what, to me, is so interesting when I think about the career of Bear Bryant is, is yeah, you think about what he did at Alabama, and that's why he's he's remembered, you know, among the, the all-time coaching greats, really and I feel like the conversation is him and Nick Saban at this point, right? But you know, just the success that that he had even before he got to Alabama is is what always strikes me when I when I just reflect on the history of his career. If you look at what Bear Bryant did at Alabama and what Nick Saban has done, you would say Nick Saban wins out. But as you just brought up, when you look at what Bear Bryant did at other places, A and M and Kentucky, and you look at the history of those programs. That kind of uh, is surpasses what what Nick Saban did. I know he won a national title at LSU, but he didn't do anything. He did well at Michigan State, but not at the level that Bear did it at A and M and 
and at Kentucky. But that's a great point you make about him with Kentucky. Because when you look for Kentucky, when it was a national prominence, I know it's doing better now, but look at its history and then look what Bear Bryant did. All right, my, my first pick here, John, um, from, from the Bear to the, to the Quipster. Uh, I'm going with, with Steve Spurrier as, as my top coach who I'd, I'd like to see back on the sidelines. And, and part of it is for the, um, the one-liners that he was obviously well-known for. I mean, I, I appreciated how, I guess, irreverent would be the word I would use for Spurrier. You know, I mean, I, I thought that was so uncommon so many coaches, you know, put the put the sport on a pedestal and put their their peers on a pedestal. I mean, Steve Spurrier would mock anyone and anything, including his own team. There were multiple instances throughout his coaching career where his team, you know, lost, and uh, the opponent would tear down the the goalposts, and he would he would make a fun of his own team in a roundabout way by saying, "Well, I don't know why they they tore down the goalposts. I'm not sure beating us was worth." was worth tearing down the goalpost. And, you know, at the same time, he'd be criticizing the opponent while also criticizing his own team, saying we're not good enough to, to be worth tearing down the goalpost for. I believe he did that once at, at Florida and said it again at South Carolina. You know, he was he was fond of the two-quarterback system, or I don't know if he was fond of it, but he used it because he didn't put those quarterbacks on a pedestal. He wasn't afraid to bench them. Obviously, what he did with the, the passing game was, you know, was thrilling. I loved watching his teams with Danny when Danny Warfel was the quarterback. Um, so I think when you combine the offensive strategy with um, that irreverent nature to just zing anybody and, and everybody, uh, I, I miss having him on the sidelines. Uh, I miss having him in the game in any capacity. He was great for a columnist. He was great for the media in general. And what was so good about him, he really liked being non-conventional. I think Steve Spurrier liked at times just showing this game is not as complicated as most coaches try to make it. It's really kind of simple. I remember there was a game I was covering in Florida. They were playing some team they easily beat in Louisiana Monroe, I think it was. His quarterback was uh, Jesse Palmer. He called a play. A receiver was open, and Jesse Palmer threw it somewhere else. He took Palmer out of the game on the next play and put in a freshman, Rex Grossman, Grossman told me after the game, he said, I said, what was it like when Spurrier put you in that situation? He said, here's what we're going to do. Here's the play we're going to run, and this guy will be open in this part of the end zone. You think you can throw it to him? And Rex, who was pretty confident himself, said, yeah. Spurrier put him in the game. The receiver was open, and he threw it to him. Spurrier really made offensive football look easy so much of the time and I do miss him and I miss his uh I miss his quotes uh and how he would needle other coaches a lot of that was directed at Tennessee's Phil Philip Fulmer people forget about George's Ray Goff I thought one of the classic lines after a game in which Florida just totally dismantled the Bulldogs a Spurrier in a post-game press conference said you know Georgia signs all these high school all-Americans I don't know what happens to them when they get here <laughs> that is such an underrated quote. You know, you always hear the one about the uh -huh. citrus bowl and yeah. you can't spell citrus without a U and a T, but that is, he actually had some better ones. And I think that, that is a, 
a low key one that's not discussed as much that I think is actually better than the Citrus Bowl one liner. <laughs> that's a great. One. I really think if Ray Goff could have killed Steve Spurrier and got away with it, he would have given it a shot. <laughs> he was a constant target. All right, John, you're you're number two. Who you got? Okay, this is going to be a big drop off from number one to, and certainly in wins and reputation. I'm going to go with Bill Curry, who's that is- a coach at coach at Alabama and at Kentucky. What I loved about Bill Curry on the sidelines, he looked like a great coach. Bear Bryant looked like he might take a nap standing up. Bill Curry looked like I can beat any team, any coach you want to put out there. I can still see him at Kentucky where he was coaching a team close to death's door. He would be standing there, arms folded, reflector sunglasses on. His body language says, we're about to kick your butt, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And the next thing you know, the opponent was up 51-7. to I think Florida scored 70 on one of his teams. Your guy, Steve Spurrier, was coaching that one. But after one of those games, and it might have been his first team at Kentucky that lost substantially to Tennessee. In the postgame press conference, Curry said, Years from now, when we're winning championships, people will ask me, what's your favorite Kentucky team? I kind of blanked out after he said, when we're winning championships, what? But he said, but this will be my favorite team because I guess this team was laying the foundation for those championships to come, which as we know, never happened. But gosh, if I were in central casting and I had to have a a great coach to put on the sideline, I'd hire Bill Curry to put on those reflector glasses and fold his arms and say, okay, go kick somebody's butt. I mentioned what strikes me about Bear Bryant is the success he had before Alabama even. The thing that strikes me about Bill Curry, John, is the fact that he was ever hired by Alabama in the first place. (laughs) I mean, it's not like he was, he was at Georgia Tech before that, right? It's not like he was successful there. And correct me if I'm wrong, you, you would know this better than I, but wasn't Bobby Bowden in the mix for the Alabama job at that time and they hired Bill Curry? Well, I mean, but what on earth? Bobby Bowden didn't wear those reflector sunglasses. That's true. He didn't look like he was the best coach in the business. So, yeah, Alabama hasn't made all great hires as we go from, yes, there was Bear Brown and Nick Saban, but there also was Mike DeBose and couple of other mics like Mike Shula and and then Bill Curry who who did better than some of those guys but didn't remind anybody of Bear Bryant or Nick Saban or Bobby Bowden or Steve Spurrier. All right, from one end of the spectrum to the other, Bear Bryant to, to Bill Curry, I like that. Um I'm I'm probably this maybe isn't quite as drastic of of a spectrum shift but yeah. It's it's still a swing. My number two pick, boy, we, we love to talk about him on this podcast. Aren't we going to miss Ed Ogeron on the sidelines? I mean, the guy, it was less than a year ago, he was trying to pick a fight with a UCLA fan hours before kickoff because that UCLA fan had a, you know, a few words for the LSU coach on the walk-in and, and dared to wear powder blue, that, that UCLA powder blue, and uh, Ed Ed offered him to come down there and and have a fight, which I would have taken Ed in the in that head to head fight with that UCLA fan. 
Of course, LSU didn't actually win the football game, lost that fight, and you know didn't win enough games in his final two seasons. But boy, I, he never failed to entertain. And maybe that's the theme that's emerging from my list here with Steve Spurrier, number one, and Ed Ogeron, number two. You know, had one of the greatest teams in college football history with Joe Burrow there, won a national championship. That's all well and good. That team entertained. But boy, even when Ed didn't have his best teams, he was always entertaining. And, and as we've talked about before, still still entertaining as he runs around shirtless, reveling in his buyout money. I don't know that I've ever seen a person that enjoyed not wearing shirts as much as Ed has. You go back to when he wore, wore shirts at uh, Ole Miss, when he's had a lot of people forget he was a head coach at Ole Miss and basically presided over a disaster. His motivational speeches were epic, and they usually included his ripping his shirt off. He just, there's just something about he doesn't want a shirt on. And I'm sure he's, as we speak, he's somewhere in Louisiana, maybe jogging, maybe just hanging out, sipping a cool one and shirtless, of course. You know, we, we talk about fit so many times when coaching hires are made and is this person a fit for the job? And, um, you know, I think that's that's somewhat overblown. But, I mean, you couldn't have had a better fit, I feel like, for LSU than, than Ed. And there were some good times and there were some bad times. But, uh, you know, he, he, knew how to, he knew how to, I guess, needle Alabama, too. I'm not even sure if it was, if it was intentional. Uh, you know, he would say things like, you know, they're not as good as they were in the past or, you know, his famous, we coming, we coming line. <laughs> he, I, I think Ed was far more straightforward than most coaches. I don't think he, there was a lot of thought put into what he, uh, what he was about to say. He wasn't calculating at all. I really think Ed, when he won that national championship with an, spectacular unbeaten season. I think he was probably more in disbelief than anyone. Just the idea that he became the head coach at LSU, a place that wouldn't, wouldn't sign him as a player. He loved LSU. As you said, he's a native South Louisianian. He was the perfect fit for LSU. And so here he is. He failed at Ole Miss as a head coach. He couldn't get the head coaching job at Southern Cal after filling in as an interim coach. And here he is at not just at LSU, but he's managing one of the greatest teams ever. It, it was as though Ed Orgeron won the lottery, and he literally won a lottery when he was fired. I think he's probably – he might be the happiest coach to ever be fired in college football. One other Edo line that, that sticks with me it was um, it was someone that called into a it was either a, it was a call in on a radio show or it was one of those deals where you're talking to a crowd and someone asked him something in in the audience I can't remember which but it was uh, you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't the type of question you would expect in in one of those settings and and Ogeron said something to the effect of uh, you know you take a wrong turn down here and and I know a, a nice little fishing hole. Where we where we could stick people like that and 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 as he, he was saying it as a joke, but you think, you know, if anyone knows where a fishing hole is in Louisiana where bodies are buried, it's Ed Ogeron. Of course it is. Yeah, there was that. That's what made the line so great. 
Yeah. I, would you really have been surprised at, in the course of a heated game if Ed Orgeron had rushed into the into the stands after a, a fan who was heckling him? No, I mean he wanted to fight that UCLA fan I, that's before what the I, game. I mean, so, I yeah. could just I could see him diving into the stands in pursuit of a punching bag. All right, John, you're number you know you're number three here. Okay. I don't know how you follow up on Bear Bryant to Bill Curry, but who who you got third out of the gates? Well, it's a I think it's the perfect segue from Ed Orgeron. The coach that preceded him, Les Miles. Everybody made fun of Ed about the way he talked, his Cajun accent, his deep voice, his, uh, you know, you just, but he made more sense in Les Miles day in and day out. There was no comparison. This is a man who was actually eating grass on the sidelines, and he was promoted because he won a national championship, proving again that basically anyone with a pulse can win a national title in college football. He's eating grass on the sideline, and it was, and that's colorful. No, he's a nut job. It's not colorful. His clock management, I would put him up against anyone for abysmal clock management. Yet, he so often walked away with a win after totally bungling a final possession, mismanaging the clock, and again, he was perceived as, or at least promoted as crafty. Mm, you know, yes. yeah, you know, oh, less man. He's just, you don't know what he's up to. There's a mm-hmm. method to his madness. There was no method to him. I asked him two questions in, in the t- course of the time he was at LSU. Once when I was a, in 2005, when I was attending a press conference prior to an LSU Tennessee game, uh, I'd heard his high school defensive coordinator was there, was going to be at the game. And so I asked him about that. It was worth a note, I thought. Uh, he didn't really, I, I don't think he even gave me his name. And I said, well, well, where does he coach now? Unless said somewhere in Ohio. Uh, I mean, Big state. It, it was, yeah, it was as though he was being interrogated and he was giving out information it just so sparingly, but anyway, he. Good luck finding him. Drive the streets of Ohio until you find him. Somewhere out there, you might find him. Yeah, and don't even think about getting his phone number. No. After he said somewhere in Ohio, I realized, yeah, I'm not going to be able to call this guy. In a way, when you think about it, those are two guys, and I think that has a lot to do with Brian Kelly's decision to leave Notre Dame for LSU. He saw Les Miles win a national title at LSU. He saw Ed Orgeron win one. And he concluded, anybody can win a national title there. I may win several. That's actually pretty sound logic, I feel like. like I mean, that, that's, that's the one takeaway I have from Les Miles is if, is if he can win a national championship at LSU, that might be the best job in America and we shouldn't count out, even though Brian Kelly's lost almost every big game he's ever coached in. Uh, I think he's a much better coach than Les Miles. So if, if Les can win one down there, well, Brian Kelly might be able to win three. If, if I mean, Brian Kelly can tell time. Les couldn't during the course of a game. Just those second hands and minutes ticking away. He just couldn't get the rhythm of it right. 
All right, my number three, John, changing changing gears a little bit, Houston Nut. And this one is is sort of wrapped up in in some of his teams that I really just enjoyed watching. You know, I know I, I like teams that have something unique about them. I don't I don't necessarily need to see somebody throwing the ball all over the yard like Spurrier's teams did. Sometimes I like watching the triple option, but I just don't want them to be like every other team out there just doing what everybody else is doing. And there were a couple years there when Houston Nutt was at Arkansas where they had the two-headed running attack of Darren McFadden and Felix Jones. And both those guys were rushing over 1,000 yards in the same season. They did it back-to-back years. Arkansas was really good those, those two years, at least 2006 and 2007. And I just loved watching those teams. You know, that was before college football got all pass-happy, so the run game was still important. But to see two guys in back-to-back years pile up over 1,000 yards, you know, I thought was, was such a treat to watch in the same way that Spurrier's offensive genius with the passing game was was fun to watch. And then you add on top of that, you know, so so Houston Nutt goes from from Arkansas to Ole Miss and, and uh, you know, gets let go at, at Ole Miss. And, and then he goes on this revenge tour, which I, I, I love a good revenge tour. Houston Nutt's one of them that, that helped blow the lid off the Hugh Freeze scandal at Ole Miss because Houston Nutt was, was accused of, of, uh, of compliance violations during his tenure at Ole Miss. And, and so he and his lawyer do some digging and say, you want to see some dirt? How about this guy, Hugh Freeze, you got in there coaching now? I thought that was fantastic. I mean, just to, you know, you want to pin me with some, some NCAA violations, some, some malfeasance. Well, check out what this guy's doing. That, that was just a, a, a great move. I thought uh, of getting the, the last laugh Houston nut and, and really ending Hugh Freeze's tenure there at Ole Miss. I really agree with you about how you were enamored with Arkansas's offense under Houston Nutt. Houston Nutt, if there were ever a team that should have run the wishbone, it was Arkansas under because he had Felix Jones, Darren McFadden, one of the greatest running backs in SEC history, both played in the NFL. His fullback was Peyton Hillis who also had a nice, who did well in the NFL. And his quarterback, who became a tight end in the NFL, was Matt Jones, who was one of the best running back, runner, running quarterbacks of all time in the SEC. That team was built for the wishbone. I don't think Houston could have figured that out, perhaps. But when we were talking about this yesterday, I was reminded of a case where Arkansas, and I think it was Arkansas and Georgia were, going into overtime, or maybe it was Ole Miss in Georgia. Uh, Houston Nutt was coaching, and a Georgia fan, friend of mine, said, man, I was really worried. And the game went a bunch of overtimes. said, I was really worried. And then I looked over there and saw uh, Peyton Hill. I saw uh, Houston Nutt on the sideline. Then I felt okay about it. His hair was askew. At least he wasn't eating grass. No, he wasn't eating grass. But he had that kind of panicky look about him. Well, you better be careful what you say about Houston Nut, John, because as we know, you criticize Houston Nut, you best not miss because he'll dig up some dirt on you. So I hope you don't have any skeletons in your closet. Final pick, John. Final pick, I'll go with Urban Meyer. 
I knew it was coming. I was waiting. I can't believe we've gotten to your fourth pick and we did not get to your man, Urban Meyer. Max Johnson's your quarterback and Urban Meyer's your coach. You're not jumping off those bandwagons. I tell you, uh, Urban Meyer is not exactly, um, doesn't have a huge fan club right now, just the way his career's gone since leaving Ohio State, really. But he won national titles, two at Florida, one at Ohio State. But watching Urban Meyer on the sideline, particularly, and where I, when I really noticed this was an SEC championship game against Alabama. Florida had won the previous matchup in a 2000 and uh, let's see, 2008, I guess. And, and Alabama won it in 2009. I might have those near, but it was the second matchup that Saban won. And just watching Urban Meyer on the sidelines, you could tell he was dying inside. He just had that deadly look about him that he was suffering. He showed no, there wasn't any screaming going on. There wasn't any apparent angst, but you just, and then lo and behold, he's going into the hospital and he's got this severe medical condition. And then as we all know, he needed to spend more time with his family. Next thing you know, he's out of football for a while. Then he's back at Ohio state winning championships again. But I honestly believe that he made, he hated losing more than any coach in college football history. And I still am baffled why he thought he could coach in the NFL where everybody loses a lot of games. How long, if he comes back to a college sideline, how long do you think it'd be before he was releasing a statement that said he was stepping down to spend more time with his family? How many seasons would, would he last before he's, he's, Citing the old more time with family line. I think it would be the first time he lost more than two games. He would suddenly have this just obsessive urge to be with his family and kind of reconnect with them. Was that woman in the bar? Do we know, was she any relation? She wasn't, was she? She wasn't. I mean, he was spending time with her, but it wasn't family, was it? I really think she probably reminded him of a family member from days gone by. He was drawn to her. That's probably what it was. All right, my final pick, John, someone I I covered the duration of his tenure as a beat writer at that time covering Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt. I miss having him on a college sideline, not for his coaching intellect, but with Pruitt, you just didn't have much of a filter. You never knew what was what he was going to say, what he was going to do. I mean, we saw him put his foot through a whiteboard one time on the sideline. We saw him uh, yanking on his quarterback's face mask in a, in a moment of, of frustration. And, and just, he was very, very entertaining in press gatherings. You know, he didn't. He wasn't going up there with with prepared notes and 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 cliches that he thought he had to say. Um, you just you never knew. I mean, after they got trounced by Alabama one year, he said, in seriousness, that they were closing the gap with Alabama. And and it was either me or someone else said, "Well, how do you know that?" And he said, "Well, I've been on that sideline, and I've been on this sideline, and so I can I just know." You know, I know what it's supposed to look like, and we're we're closing the gap. Of course, he was fired unceremoniously, 
not long after that. And one of my favorite Pruitisms, John, he was asked on a teleconference some question by a reporter that that really it was a dumb question in, in Pruitt's defense. But I loved the line and response. He had no idea what the reporter was talking about. And so rather than pretend like he did, he just said, I ain't got no idea. <laughs> and I love that line. And I think you could have said that about a lot of Jeremy Pruitt's tenure at Tennessee is, I ain't got no idea. If you're writing a, a book on Tennessee football coaches, the chapter on Jeremy Pruitt would be entitled, I ain't got no idea. Or we're closing the gap on Alabama too great. What to me was so great about Jeremy Pruitt was the column fodder he provided, and it was so unexpected on the heels of Butch Jones, who I thought was a a columnist dream coach because of all his uh, idiotic, trite expressions, uh, champions of life, five-star hearts. Uh, I don't think we have time to go into the shy Tuttle incident when, when, according to Butch Jones, he was injured his eye by falling on a helmet. Yeah, Shy had that, that that shiner, just that classic shiner. You yeah, don't see the it, knuckles on his face, but yeah, how did that how did that happen? Butch was asked, not expecting the question. I don't think anybody ever accused him of being quick on his feet with his responses. He was more of a uh, he was a more scripted kind of guy. He was, and and I, and I debated going with Butch in this spot because of his gaffes as as well, which, as you said, you know, as people who make a living off of off of this stuff uh you know those folks that say wonky things make our job a little easier but yeah butch just felt too scripted he had that that used car salesman it's almost like he prepared those one-liners in advance the five-star hearts and the champions of life jeremy i don't i don't think he was preparing this stuff in advance he he had you know of course the the infamous meeting with the knoxville quarterback club in 2019 tennessee had had started the season with a loss to to Georgia State. And, of course, after that loss, they had some players hop in the transfer portal. And so Pruitt, as he's addressing the Knoxville Quarterback Club, references the movie Titanic. And he says, you know, when the boat starts going down, remember all those mice running to the top? We've had a few players that left our program, but you're going to figure out who wants to be a Tennessee Vol and and who doesn't. And, and it's just like, well, wait a second, Jeremy. Like, the mice had the right idea. They were trying to get off this ship because it's about to sink. Like, you know, it's like he was trying to throw the mice under the bus for trying to get off this sinking ship. It's like, don't don't forget at the end of that movie, the ship sinks. Words weren't really his forte. I mean, it was a ship, not a boat. And, and those weren't mice. Those were people. That was an epic line. I, I just feel blessed to be able to cover Butch Jones and Jeremy Pruitt back-to-back. I know fans don't feel that way about those coaches, but, and I've said this before, but honestly, I would pay to see a chess match between Butch Jones and Jeremy Pruitt. You think they go with the Sicilian defense? I think you could have had a mutual white flags raise, kind of like, man, this is too hard. Somebody got some checkers. We can finish this thing up. For a tiebreaker, let's play checkers. 
I have a hard time criticizing that. I always love checkers myself. Uh, I have a hard time driving in the knife there because I don't play chess. So when when people say he's playing checkers, not chess, I'm the guy playing checkers. So yeah, you? I remember. Uh, I thought I was a pretty good chess player, and I played when I was in college. I played a guy on the LSU chess team, and I don't know. We were about a dozen moves into the game, and and I made a move, and he looked over at me and with a kind of an expression of disbelief and said, uh, I thought you were a pretty good player till you did that kind of a crushing blow because I really didn't know what I'd done wrong. So I had to just think, Hmm, what did I do here? That was so, so dreadful. And two moves later, you were laying a few down moves later. I, I was done and probably my last chess match. Now that I look back on it, all right, well, there's our, our list. Your your one through four are, are Bear Bryant, Bill Curry, Les Miles, and Urban Meyer. And I want back on the sidelines, Steve Spurrier, Ed Ogeron, Houston Nutt, and Jeremy Pruitt. Maybe we could, I mean, that, that's a good startings of a staff there. We got our head coach, offensive and defensive coordinators, and a recruiting coordinator. Tough to beat. Yeah, I, I don't think I could compete with your foursome. I think your foursome is funnier than mine. And and I think we see how I, when we say I when I say I miss him in, on the sidelines, and I didn't really think about this as I was forming this <laughs> list, but apparently I just miss him at the lectern. You know, I miss him with a microphone in front of him. That's that's really what I miss, I guess. Although I did why I did enjoy watching. In in all seriousness, I did enjoy watching Spurrier's teams and and Houston Nuts teams. So there there's a little bit of on field stuff there that goes into it. But yeah, I think you're, yeah, I think you got me pegged there. Really, what I miss is just the quotes that they they offered up to fill a notebook. <laughs> well, Jeremy Pruitt, uh, he could grab a player's helmet pretty fast. He wasn't—he wasn't opposed to jerking somebody's head around every now and then. All right, John. Closing closing thoughts here. We want to change gears and go back to uh, something Greg Sankey said to a group of reporters in Birmingham last week. I want to get your thoughts on this. He was discussing the college football playoff, and this is really the most we'd heard. Greg Sankey discussed this since since playoff expansion had been tabled. And and as we know, Greg Sankey wanted to stay at either four teams or he wanted to go to 12 teams. He did not think the eight-team format benefited the SEC in any way, and I agree with him. I don't think an eight-team format really does benefit the SEC. They get two teams in a four-team format. They probably get two teams in an eight-team format when you have six of the eight teams being automatic bids and playoff expansion needed universal support from the the conference commissioners. It didn't get that. They couldn't get behind a plan. And so it stayed at four. And so this is what Greg Sankey said. He said, quote, we can stay at four. This conference will thrive at four period. That's not healthy for the rest of FBS college football, but we can stay at four. I want to, I want to know what you think about that because I think he's spot on here. I think what he says is, is true. I think he's he's piling on a little bit. I think he's kind of driving the the needle in of hey, other conference commissioners, you didn't want to expand to twelve, fine. I think he's right when he says the SEC can stay at four. It's won the last three national championships with three different teams in Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. But I think that the portion of that quote that didn't get a lot of attention, you know, everybody was focusing on. He says we can stay at four and this conference will thrive. I think the second part of that quote really rang true for me. That's not healthy for the rest of FBS football. I think he's right. I think a four-team playoff is great for the SEC. It works for the SEC just fine. I don't think it's it's particularly good for the health of the sport. I mean, 
in this entire playoff era, we've had two teams from the mountain or the Pacific time zones in, in the entirety of the playoff. I, I agree with Sankey. I don't, I don't think it's great for the sport. I looked at it as a two pronged assault on the competition. Basically he's saying it doesn't matter how many teams are in the playoffs. We're the best league. And based on this decision, I'm the smartest commissioner. Hmm. What bothers me a lot about college football is how long it takes to do something that you know is the right call, but you just, it's that glacier-like mentality. Well, let's, let's appoint a committee. Let's study this a little more. And then we'll come up with a, a decision in a few years, somewhere down the road. And then, that decision gets delayed or postponed and wait a few more years. Who knows when we'll have an expanded playoff. Everybody knows it's in the best interest of college football. And, and as Stanky pointed out, the best league, the SEC, it doesn't really matter. If you have 12 teams in, we might get three in the playoff. Might get five. Four, if we have four we might get two because our strength of schedule will be off the charts. So, yeah. And, and Sankey, I mean, like I said, he was, you could tell he was really enjoying himself as, as he was on a roll with this, this discussion. Cause he's, I mean, and why not? He's got every reason to, to gloat. His league's won, you know, five of the eight titles in this format. He's, they've won three in a row, three different teams. And he offered the olive branch of going to 12 and they didn't take it. So why not gloat a little bit? But, you know, according to Sankey, he was asked recently by one of his colleagues, like, well, isn't the four-team playoff going to be a problem once Oklahoma and Texas join the league? Kind of like, you know, there's going to be too few spots for too many good SEC programs. And Sankey said he just thought, why? Why is it a problem? You know, like, yeah, it, it, it will be harder to get into the playoff, but at the end of the day, more times than not, the uh, the SEC team's going to grab the championship trophy in a four-team form, really in any format. You know, I don't know that the SEC loses its its stranglehold on the sport if the playoff expands, but I do think it would be a more compelling product. You'd get more playoff representation. And I think as teams from various parts of the country made the playoff more often, that might open the door just a crack toward, uh, as Jeremy Pruitt would say, closing the gap. There's there's nothing better than being than knowing you're on the right side of an argument and the most popular side of an argument and having a public forum, which Sankey had. So yeah, it was win-win for the SEC again. Are you still in the camp of you you want an eight team playoff, John, with how many auto bids? I, I like the twelve team format and you've been on record liking eight. What, what's what's your preference there with the eight with the auto bids? Oh, that's when you said auto bid, I thought that was a reference to my 20-year-old Honda Accord sitting out there off the side of the driveway in very high grass. Oh, the grass but, is, is growing again now. Huh? Yeah, actually, I moved my car so Jerry could cut the grass beneath the Honda Accord. And the price on that Accord as we stand today is? Uh, I'll have you know that I really don't want to talk about price anymore because I already have someone is inquiring about purchasing my car. Ooh, congratulations. And and they're probably a podcast listener, yes? I don't know that for sure. But uh, yes, they, they are interested in the car. It might be tough for me to let to part ways with that car. So it's it's going to be costly for a buyer. I'll say that much. 
So after all the after all the advertising, hawking that car and the, the tall grass, really It's just yeah, I just don't want to let it go. I mean, it's just hard. I cranked it up yesterday, ran okay. Wasn't as idling as, as fast as my new Kia was, Kia Forte. But back to your question, sorry for the tangent, but back to your question. Yeah, I like an eight-team, I like an eight-team playoff. I want every power five conference to have a team in the playoff. And then you get three at large teams. But I think a power five league, the the winning team, the, the wins the team that wins the conference should go into the playoffs. I think that would affect scheduling in a positive way. It wouldn't matter what your record was. You wouldn't have to beat up on uh, Akron or some other uh, weak uh, MAC team. You could schedule as long as you won your conference, you're in. Don't you think interest could wane, though, in the early portions of the season? Because at that point, the portion of the schedule that really matters is the conference championship and the playoff. You know, you're not, there's not a lot of at large bids. So it's like you just got to tune into the conference championship games and in the playoffs. That's that's one of my concerns with a with an eight team format where the majority of your bids are are auto bids is you reduce the interest in the sport to the to the final sprint. Yeah, that's a valid point. I just wonder I just really hate watching these mismatches. It's when the games are a foregone conclusion. Well, like uh, in Jeremy Pruitt's second season at Tennessee, I had to get, go back to Jeremy Pruitt, but Tennessee opened up with Georgia State. You know Georgia State has no chance of winning that game, even with Jeremy Pruitt coaching. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. If 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 you put so many of the bids wrapped up in, in the conference championships, that incentivizes teams to play a robust regular season schedule, um, particularly in non-conference games, because as long as you get to the conference championship, you've got a shot to make the playoff. So you could go 0-4 in your non-conference and still have a shot to to make the playoff. I, I see I see your point there. I I mean, the bottom line is we both favor playoff expansion. Um, I guess we would be the, the conference commissioners, though, the not agreeing on a format. You'd be holding on to that 8-team. I'd be holding on to that 12-team. And, and just like happened when the conference commissioners got together, we'd be left with, with four teams because we couldn't come to a, a unanimous agreement. Well, if 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 I had to, I would I would move over to your line of thinking and and take the 12 team. Okay. In the game's best interest, of course. Well, I appreciate that compromise. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered, a favorite podcast of Steve Spurrier and Honda Dealers everywhere.